Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pulling, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. It's been a little longer than usual since my last episode was published. I spent the last week in Chelan. I uh, visited Lake Chelan, stayed at a timeshare with my girlfriend Marion, and uh, the Wi-Fi there was not good enough. <laughs> not good enough to record an episode. I had the uh, uh, time all set with my guest this week to record this last week and do it from there, but we uh, agreed, he graciously agreed to put it off a week until I got home and had adequate Wi-Fi to record a good episode. So it's been a little bit longer gap than usual. Gave me a chance to do some county birding in Chelan County, and it turns out that county birding is a great lead into this episode. Kimball Garrett is my guest, and Kimball is a Los Angeles County birder supreme. He is an all-around terrific birder. He's birded a lot of places in the world. He's very knowledgeable about birds of all, all sorts of birding and ornithology. But he is a big-time L.A. County birder. Los Angeles County in California is an extraordinary place for birding. It has a county list, and I'm using easy-to-get eBird lists. These aren't the official numbers for any of the counties or states that I talk about. But on eBird, a Los Angeles County uh, has a list of almost 550 species, 548 species uh, on eBird. Uh, the whole state of Washington has 506 species. Uh, and so Los Angeles County uh, has the most species seen in that county of any county in the United States. And the birder who has the biggest eBird list in Los Angeles County is my guest this week, Kimball Garrett. He has 525 species in Los Angeles County. Pretty extraordinary, really. And I'm not sure uh, how he does his eBird list, whether all of those are listable species. eBird can mess your lists up a little bit. But nonetheless, he's got an extraordinary list uh, in uh, Los Angeles County, California. I'm from Pierce County, Washington, and our whole eBird County list is 322 species, uh, and uh, Bruce Labar is the number one eBird lister in the county, and he has nowhere near 300 species in the county. So uh, it's uh, Los Angeles County is a pretty special place to be for a bird, or a lot of birds you can find, a lot of varied habitat, and Kimball is a uh, passionate uh, birder. Uh, not so much about listing and finding birds now as when he was young, but still an extraordinary resource, an extraordinary birder, and someone I really had fun with having on the uh, episode today. It was really fun to talk to Kimball. I hope you enjoy the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 72 with Kimball Garrett. Kimball, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for talking to me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You are one of the uh, the people I've heard your name over the years here and there from some of my friends who grew up in California. So it's really great to have a chance to talk to you. I'm excited about that. Yeah, I look forward to chatting about birding and ornithology and anything else you want to talk about. That's good. Kimball, you, did you grow up in California? It looked to me like uh, you some of your young uh, days in birding were in California. How did you get started at birding? And tell me about your beginnings as a birder. Yeah, I grew up in Los Angeles, um, and I think a large part of my getting started in birding was that we lived sort of on the edge of Griffith Park, so on the edge of a relatively wild area. So there were, you know, there's certainly birds around to notice. Now, I'd quickly add that there are birds around to notice everywhere, and you certainly don't have to grow up next to any kind of wild habitat to, to get that spark. But um, I never know what to tell people when they ask me how I got started birding because I was interested in birds 
really as long as I could remember. Um, a lot of people have a spark bird. They'll say, oh, it was this, you know, scrub jay or that red-tailed hawk or whatever. And I just, I honestly can't think of anything. I was just interested in looking at birds, uh, reading a few books. Um, my parents had a few bird books around. It was really frustrating back then because most of them were heavily centered on Eastern North America. Uh, I remember one um, very large authoritative book that would relegate all the Western species to kind of a little paragraph at the end of, of discussing the real birds from the East. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, I grew up in Hollywood and I've actually lived in California and almost entirely in the Los Angeles area my whole life. Exciting place to be for a birder, that's for sure. Yeah, well, it's, you know, incredibly diverse, just something about the range of habitats, the, the um, well, the proximity to the ocean, obviously, the latitude, and Los Angeles, you know, I always like to make this point that Los Angeles County actually has the highest bird list of any county in the entire United States. San Diego is real close on our heels, but they're, we're kind of neck and neck, but we've got going on close to 530 species just from within the, the county, counting a handful of introduced species as well. So it's a good place to get started. It is. Uh, and you grew up in a time when there were, you know, birding in a lot of the country was still an old man's game. Uh, and in California, uh, when you were young, there was a cadre of young birders. Uh, you know, I, I've met some of them over the years, and it sounds like a pretty exciting place to be a young birder in those days. It really was in the late 60s and into the 70s. Um, I mean, you know, some of my earliest mentors were, were kind of oldish folks. Um, they weren't necessarily the greatest birders in California, but they were willing to to put up with me as an obnoxious little kid and take me in the field and teach me about things. So, um, you know, Shum Suffle in LA, a woman named Betty Jenner, these were all very generous people. Um, but the, the grand old man at the time was certainly Guy McCaskey, which is ironic because he wasn't old at all. He was all of maybe 30, but to a, you know, a teenager, <laughs> he seemed like the old, the, you know, the old, um, the old man who'd been around and knew everything. And, uh, he was incredibly, um, you know, guy, guy's just a story all by himself. And if you haven't interviewed him, you should, but he's, um, he really broke so much ground. And I think, uh, just, he was just some something to live up to in, in many ways. And I think the main thing that got me really going was a, sort of a friendly competition that arose with John Dunn, who grew up not too far away. He was out in the San Fernando Valley. I was in Hollywood. We ran into each other early on, about 1967, on a Audubon field trip. And it became, you know, a friendship, but also kind of competitive. He'd bird his area, I'd bird mine. We'd compare who saw what and how much and who had the most species and, and all that. But um, so that, that really got me going. And John, you know, is, he's always challenging you because he was always a few steps ahead of me. And, you know, he would, he'd know female ducks. And I would say, I don't do female ducks. And you know, eventually I figured, well, if he can do it, I can learn it. And it just, you know, we, I think we fed off each other pretty well. Have, having a friendly competition doesn't hurt at all. I live in Pierce County, Washington now, by the Puget Sound and Bruce Labar. I, you, I don't know if you know Bruce, Bruce Labar. Yeah, a, little, a little bit. Yeah. Bruce Labar and a handful of us here in Pierce County uh, every year have a, a friendly competition. This year, one of my previous guests 
uh, Heather Balish. Uh, she just retired. She's a very good birder. Her husband has been more the driving force of birding, but he's he works for a company that he's working from home and really not working that much right now. And, and she just retired, so she has just been all over it this year and all. All uh, all spring, it's been uh, Heather one or two birds ahead of Bruce all year, and uh, yeah, we're all hoping for uh, Heather to win, be the first woman to win the competition, you know. And uh, and they they have a, a little social group that uh, one of the uh, one of the the daughters of one of the people in the social group has a developmental delay, and she's the social director of that group. She has Down syndrome, and and so she she'll say things, you know, that are. Very true, but somebody else might not say. Uh, and uh, and so she said, "Oh, she heard about this little competition, and so now it's red hot Heather, <laughs> red hot Heather." Yeah. Yeah. So well, you know the the thing about the quote unquote competition is it wasn't so much for numbers or how many birds you could see. It it really people like like John Dunn and others that I birded with a lot early on. Um, oh, eventually people like. Richard Webster and Louis Bevere and Paul Lehman and others, mm-hmm. they, they were real status and distribution freaks. And they, of course they still are. And, and mm-hmm. it was almost more of a competition to how much can you learn and how much can you know about the seasonal status, the vagrancy status and mm-hmm. so on of all the species. And, and that, you know, it really gets you digging into the, the fine points of why birds occur where they do and when they do and to learn, more about it. And, and the other thing is, is I would try to read kind of religiously, whatever had been written, whatever was known. So like in 1970, excuse me, 1970, when California field ornithologists started and the journal California birds started, uh, which has since become, of course, Western field ornithologists and Western birds. um, You know, I would read everything in it just backwards and forwards, all the, all the other guides and and birds of this state and birds of that state and and just trying to learn that stuff because it became pretty clear there's a there's a lot of studying to do if you if you really want to learn birds there is yeah that status and distribution is so key to just feel birding uh yeah it, it took me a lot of years to figure out that you know, why am I not seeing something? Because it doesn't exist here, you know, or what, why do the other birders always find these birds? Because they know what to look for. They know what's common. They know what's unexpected. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of field birding is just knowing what to expect. Yeah. So, you know, that's the prepared mind, um, the old quotes that you always hear, but um, yeah. And, and of course the big, difference we're talking about late 60s early 70s is there there was a lot to build on a lot of knowledge um you know from specimen collections from avifaunal works um a lot of field marks were really just being explored and developed there was a lot to build on but nothing like now now it's basically people are starting out with such a phenomenal knowledge base about birds and it's so easy to get that knowledge you know just turn on the computer, look at your phone, and you've got almost everything you need to know. Um, Back then, a lot of this knowledge was still kind of being developed. So it was kind of an exciting time rather than, I know everybody knows everything. How am I going to learn it? It's like, well, we still don't know this and we still don't know that. And it's just a lot of fun, that kind of exploration. 
Yeah, that wasn't, I mean, that time wasn't that long after people really started to understand how birds migrate and that birds migrate. And, and you know, it was around the time when they learned that birds migrate over the Gulf of Mexico, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Wasn't, it was around then. Yeah. yeah. So, of yes. course, Guy McCaskey, what, you know, what he contributed and, and of course still contributes is, is that kind of doing the research to know what to expect and to, and to know that what was seemingly impossible actually might be a regular phenomenon. And he just opened up everybody's eyes to, to what could show up where. And so, you know, now, now the next great rare bird is a hell of a lot rarer than it was back in the 19, late sixties and seventies. But uh, we all, we all know the possibilities are almost endless. Yeah. And the birding oases that you have in Southeast California and other places now are so regularly burdened that things are going to be found. Yeah. Well, there's, of course, the number of bird watchers. You know, whenever you look at the change in status of a bird, you have to immediately think, well, is it really the bird changing or is it just because we've got literally orders of magnitude more competent birders out there and much better ways of 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 knowing what they have seen and what they've recorded but um yeah the oases there it's a little sad over the years because so many of the great birding spots back in the 70s have, have dried up or disappeared or been mown down or whatever um uh, in los angeles county there are some really nice lush ranch yards out in the antelope valley which is the mojave desert part of the county and one by one with the water table lowering and water more expensive and agriculture changing and urbanization these have all kind of disappeared and now they're just a handful of places that are not nearly as good so you you kind of wonder if we had as many birders back then as we do now, and as as good a pipeline to learn what they've seen. With digital cameras. Yeah, right. But also importantly, if there were as many birds around now as there were back then, it's just mind-boggling what might have been found. And so now we've got the troops out there, but there there isn't as much to pick from anymore. That is true. That is true. I talked to Dennis Paulson. He's at one of your fellow museum uh, gurus uh, not too long ago on the show. And uh, he talked about how the uh, Columbia, Columbia River Valley, the, the, the Great Columbia Basin has changed over 45 years. And it's just one of the sad things he's seen happen in his life. He calls it Big Pharma, F-A-R-M-A, Big Pharma, <laughs> has, uh, has changed the uh, the whole landscape of Southeast Washington. So I'm sure it's not, not terribly dissimilar. Right. Yeah. It's happening everywhere. Yeah. So uh, you, you uh, did a lot of birding with a lot of really, you know, competent and passionate young birders in those days. Tell me about your career. How did, how did that uh, evolve? You got some education, you got, you've had a great job for a lot of years. Yeah. Well, I didn't, have any idea I would end up in the museum field and I'm very grateful that I did it was almost sort of by accident but um you know I knew I knew I was passionate about birds and bird biology and learning more about birds I, I didn't know if I could cut it as a biologist when I started undergraduate work at UCLA I still hadn't declared a major but I thought well I'm going to take all the biology I can and then see if I can get through the the physics and the chemistry and the calculus and everything else you had to know to major in biology. And I, mm-hmm. I, I squeaked through. Um, of course, you, you don't learn birding in college. You don't learn field ornithology that well, but you, you get a good background in, in evolutionary biology, ecology, and that sort of thing. And so I decided, well, it, it seems like something I'd like to pursue. Um, I started 
graduate work, but I spent my senior year at, at Berkeley and got exposed to other ornithologists and, and met there a, a number again of, of really great sort of combined birder ornithologists. You know, Van Remsen was a graduate student there at the time and certainly was kind of a shining light in, in, in the possibilities of being an ornithologist. And um, But I ended up in grad school back at UCLA and then it, then it kind of went, well, downhill a little bit. I don't think I was, <laughs> I don't think I was really cut out for PhD level research. Um, I think had I focused myself better, I could have uh, gotten through the PhD. But one thing that happened is John Dunn and I started working on this birds of Southern California status and distribution while I was in grad school in the late 1970s. And it became such a labor um, but it kind of took me away from PhD work for a little while. And then, then when I was about to get back into it, a one year temporary soft money position came up at the LA County Museum of Natural History. Um, this was back in 19, this ended up in 1982, I guess it was. And Ralph Schreiber, who was a curator of birds at the time, hired me as a curatorialist, well, collection manager, they called it, but it was just a soft money position. And then that turned into three years, and then it turned into a full-time county position. So I didn't have any idea when I started at the museum that I would end up being there for what has now been 38 years. So um, it's been, you know, very rewarding just interacting with the ornithological community, with the public, with the, you know, incredible collection of specimens and all that has been just, been, I've been really lucky to be associated here. It sounds like it. Tell me what that job is like. How how has it evolved? And what do you? What does a museum uh, person do? What 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 does your job involve? The collection manager. <laughs> well, you know, it, it used to be that the the position in a collection was curator, and the the curator curated the collection and did research based on the collection. But really, the research and collection care aspects have become separated. So almost all bird collections now have in any major collection may have a curator whose position is primarily um, to do research um, and to oversee the whole ornithology program. And then the collection managers actually curate the collections and manage the collection. So I'm responsible for the addition of new specimens, the conservation of the existing specimens, the use of the collections, the databases, that sort of thing. And of course, being a public institution, we do a lot of outreach as well, a lot of public programs. And so I I get very much involved with that as well. Um, over the, you know, 38 years I've been here, the curators we have had in the past were not really birders. They weren't conversant in the local bird life and ornithology. Mm -hmm. and not that they didn't do great research. It just wasn't what they did. And so it fell upon me to do pretty much all the programming and, and anything else related to the collection that required a lot of knowledge of the local bird life. Um, we uh, just in the last few years, um, we've got a new curator, Dr. Allison Schultz, who's, who's doing amazing work on all sorts of things and knows the local birds. And we're beginning some projects looking at, in particular, non-native birds established around Southern California and, and so on. But for the longest time, I was kind of it for the, you know, the, the modern bird person who, instead of focusing on particular aspects of biology, was kind of an all around, you know, field ornithologist birder type so that's really handy to have a, a, a 
someone as a birder uh, in a museum position. Dennis Paulson was that for us for years at University of Puget Sound. And boy, what a great asset to the birding community to have, you know, one of the best birders in the whole state also be a museum director. I mean, that was like, wow, that was really a plus. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, the way collections are built is is really changing too. I mean, I'm really, really impressed at some of the institutions like LSU and Kansas and the American Museum and Michigan and many others, the Field Museum, who do lots of field work, um, exploration, collecting a lot of editions of new specimens, which fill in gaps, not only taxonomically, but geographically, seasonally, and so on. And also the extended specimens that are prepared nowadays that have tissue samples, parasites, often voice recordings, many other things that are really different from just the, you know, basically the stuffed bird with a label with minimal data that was the standard for so long. So I'm really impressed at all these um, collecting they do around the world, but we just haven't really done that here since about the 1970s. So we focused more on building collections of birds within Southern California through some, some limited field collecting, but primarily through salvage. And so we've got programs where we work with wildlife rehab facilities, uh, the public staff and, and others. And we, we really, I mean, we add hundreds and hundreds of birds every year just through this kind of salvage. Sure. And there's nothing, there's nothing to say that, that studying common birds in urban areas isn't also as biologically valid as, as you know, collecting poorly known birds in poorly parts of the world. They're, they're all important to do. So we've, you know, just through salvage, for example, we've amassed probably 200 Cooper's hawks since I've been here. Um, and you couldn't do that by getting permits and actively collecting them. We've also focused a lot on non-native species. So I've got a series of something like 55 um, scaly-breasted munias and 30 or 40 uh, northern red bishops. And we're, we've got 25 or 30 red-crowned parrots and so on. Just, again, mostly built up through salvage, although the munias, um, it's permitting to collect them is a little easier than most native native birds. So that's a, we've done some active collecting there, but, and so building these collections is, you know, it's, it's, it's looking to the future too, because we don't know 20, 30, 50 years from now, what people will learn from these specimens. So having a timeline, which in LA, you know, we've got specimens go back to the 1880s, 1890s, and a few earlier. But we also have the, the incredible deposits from the La Brea Tar Pits, which actually extend our knowledge of birds around Los Angeles back, you know, 10, 20, even up to about 40,000 years. So just continuing these timelines to do all sorts of research, some of which we can't even imagine what it is right now, is, is really important. Right. Has that, is anyone, I, I'm asking this, assuming that someone is, is there much research going on as to the impact of the many introduced species in Southern California on all other aspects of, uh, of ecology there? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. There's a, this is an increasingly important area of research, um, just, you know, for, on many levels, one of which the most obvious would be are these invasive species that are causing damage to natural communities or potentially economic damage and so on. So you always want to know that. But there's a lot of just overall biology you can you can learn. So, for example, um, from our salvaged parrots and similar salvage program going on uh, across town at the Moore Laboratory of Zoology, uh, we can look at the genetics of red-crowned parrots here in Southern California compared to their 
native range in northeastern Mexico, we can look at whether they are hybridizing with related species that they're occurring with here in Los Angeles. And you know, thanks to the work of folks over at the Moor Laboratory of Zoology, we now know that red-crowned and lilac-crowned parrots are hybridizing and maybe not even in an insignificant degree. Um, but just there's still a lot we don't know about general ecology. So from specimens, we can learn things like how are breeding seasons shifting, molt schedules, um, what are their diets? You can look at stomach contents and, and so on. And um, how do their parasite loads compare to in their native range and that kind of thing. So there's a lot you can learn. I think in, in answer to your question, by and large, most of these species are restricted to highly modified habitats, either urban or suburban, or in the case of things like munias, it can be both urban and suburban and kind of uh, flood control channels and rivers that have been highly modified. And mm -hmm. um, so they're not, most of these aren't interacting a lot with native birds, except native birds, which also are urban adapted. But, you know, you never know what's going on. So, for example, I'm sorry to go on and on about God, it. I'm loving it. It's really kind of fun. For example, the pintail whitas numbers are exploding in Southern California. Yes. I mean, we have hundreds and hundreds of them, and they're, they're, they're just expanding like crazy. Now, this is a brood parasite, and their hosts are not here. Their hosts are uh, Estrilda finches waxbills in their native range in Africa. Right. So how can they be exploding? Why are we seeing flocks of 30, 40 juvenile whitas and so on? And, and it turns out, and this, this work was done by a really keen young local birder here in the Los Angeles area named John Garrett, who's no relation, but um, John did field work. And I might add, John is now working at Cornell for eBird. Um, but he did field work and verified that it was actually the scaly-breasted munia that is the host of the pintail whita here. And so um, that, that explains why they're doing so well, because, of course, the munias have boomed as well. And so it's a switch to a novel host, even though the host is at least in the correct family, the Astrildidae. But it's, it's just one of this, this says so much about California that we've got a bird from Africa parasitizing a bird from India, nesting in a tree that's probably from Australia. And this is how we've got to put a big mishmash together. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the uh, avian melting pot. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> yeah, that's fun stuff. That is really cool. Are you still getting out birding a lot? Do you uh, do you uh, find time to get out and bird a lot? And what are your birding passions now? I bird a lot, but not not as intensively as I used to. I, um, you know, I, I enjoyed beefing up my California list and my Los Angeles County list and things like that. But um, my, you know, my sort of mantra when I'm going to go birding now is where can I go where there won't be any other birders? Because with the advent of eBird and, and all these chat, you know, all these social media and so on, if there's an interesting bird around, you know, there's going to be 30 or 40 or 50 birders there the next day. And that's just anathema to me. Why, why go somewhere that is already going to get 10, 20 eBird lists submitted. What am I possibly going to add? What am I possibly going to learn? So I really focus my birding on going places where birders don't go as much. Um, of course, the corollary of that, it's, it means places where there aren't necessarily as many birds, but but that's okay. Um, and of course, the COVID thing has, has really impacted me as well. So Of course. I actually live a fair ways from the museum. We moved just about a year and a half ago. So I'm out on the desert slope of the mountains north of Los Angeles. And so I've got 
easy access to the mountains and also to the Mojave Desert part of the county, which, you know, still has a few parks and ranch yards and things that are worth covering for migrants and, and an incredible wetland out on the Edwards Air Force Base called Paiute Ponds, which unfortunately has been close to visitation because of COVID. But um, so my typical birding nowadays would probably be within 10 or 20 miles of home, um, if not walkable from home. And just, you know, seeing what I can learn, it's it's kind of neat out there because not a lot of birds spend the winter. You know, you get to the coastal slope of Los Angeles area and almost anything can spend the winter there. So yeah. it's harder, harder to tease apart things like migration seasons because it's, you know, you get a Cassin's Vireo on March 8th, you know, well, that's ridiculously early, but maybe it spent the winter here. Whereas if you get one out on the desert slope, you know, it's a migrant, you know, it didn't spend the winter there. So I'm learning a little more about seasonality and things like molt migration. So one of the cool things I've noticed this summer is that starting in June, um, a few bell sparrows, this is the subspecies, which Canessens nests on on the Mojave Desert, basically. Um, they, they nest only a few miles north of me down onto the floor of the desert. But in our yard, they're not there in the late winter and through the spring. But starting in June, a couple showed up. And then by July, we had 10, 20 every day running around the yard, hanging around the bird baths and things. And they've been around since then. And I've watched them all go through their molts, the juvenile birds molting into their formative plumage and all that. So nice. it's really it's really a striking example of a not a major molt migration, but just a simple kind of upslope gain about a thousand feet where there's probably more resources available in the summer and watch them go through their molts. So that's been that kind of thing has been kind of fun to watch. Yeah, sounds like a little uh Little article for Western field ornithologist to me. Little comment there. Well, there there's some really good people studying migration or molt and molt migration and things like that. And so um, I'm not sure how much this really adds to what we knew, but it's kind of neat to just see it all unfolding before you get it all firsthand. Yeah, that whole bell sparrow, uh, you know, sagebrush sparrow, two races of bell sparrow has really been, yeah. An interesting, uh, you know, interesting to watch as uh, over the last decade or so. Yeah, the the dark, um, more coastal subspecies is actually resident probably within ten miles in a straight line of my house, but not over on uh, on the arid desert side of the mountains. Mm-hmm. And then the sagebrush sparrow that that's. That's an enigma because there's actually only a couple of records for Los Angeles County, even though we know they must come through. So sure. every every year we figure, okay, we're gonna go, we're gonna go find sagebrush sparrows out here in the Antelope Valley. And actually, ironically, one of the, the couple records I can cite right offhand for the county are over on the coast. In fact, one is over on on one of the islands off the coast. So being more highly migratory, they're the one that's most likely to hit the coast and the offshore islands. But they've got to be sure. Out. They've got to be out in the desert too, so yeah. I don't know. That's that's maybe this fall. <laughs> yeah, identifying them will be the trick. I mean, they don't look much different. No, it's it's tricky, but it's it's doable. It's doable. Now, now yeah. whether, you, whether you can document it well enough to convince everybody, that's that's a little tougher. But uh, yeah, we'll see. For listeners who aren't maybe as uh, avid about uh, the AOU and ABA checklists, uh, Sage Sparrow got split, what, five, six years ago, something like that, into two sub- two, two separate species, Sagebrush Sparrow and Bell Sparrow. And Bell Sparrow has two, uh, maybe more than two, but at least two major 
subspecies or races, uh, the coastal one that's darker colored and the, and the interior one that doesn't look a whole lot different than sage rust sparrow. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's more complicated than that, but that's a good okay. summary because they, the Knessens or Mojave Desert Bell Sparrow is, is actually somewhat different um, in, in some ways genetically and vocally. There's some differences between the Mojave Desert populations and the southern San Joaquin Valley populations. Um, so there's, there's a lot of great work being done by Carlos Cicero at, at the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology and others on variation in this group. Plus there's another subspecies in northwestern Baja, California, and yet another one out on San Clemente Island, which is um, one of the one of the nicest things about it. I was bragging about the LA County species list early on in the interview. And one of the reasons it's so impressive is because of San Clemente Island got put into LA County. And oh. we have the San Clemente Island loggerhead shrike to thank for the fact that some really top-notch field ornithologists have been doing work out there year-round for many, many years now. And so the bird life is very well-known, well-studied out there, and it's an incredible vagrant trap. I mean, it's got the only county or state records of things like the blue throat and stone chat and um, red flank blue tail. And, you know, you can go on, it's had rye neck. I mean, it's had phenomenal birds and the poor San Diego County. I mean, here's San, San Clemente Island lying, you know, 40, 50 miles directly off San Diego, but it got stuck into LA County in terms of official County connection. And so we get those birds and not only that, we get all that ocean around the Island. So it's, yeah. it's when you compare the LA and San Diego County list, you have to kind of keep in mind that for, of reasons having nothing to do with biology, LA really drew the the nice long straw there in, in, in the real <laughs> estate. Yeah, San Clemente Island. The, now you can't just go to San Clemente Island, can you? Isn't that a uh, restricted area? Yeah, it's military. It's a Navy island, so you have. Uh, to have that's what I thought. Permission. You need permission. You need to have. Now, occasionally they will need volunteers to help with things like shrike surveys and other things, and a few lucky people get out there. I actually got out there way back in I think 1975, 1976. I was helping a PhD student at UCLA uh, named Lee Jones. Lee was a student of Jared Diamond's and they were very interested in island biogeography and the turnover rates of birds colonizing and going extinct on the California Channel Islands. So Lee, I, I got to go do a bunch of surveys for him on various islands, which was great. And Lee uh, went on to get his PhD in that, and, and among other things, he's been a biological consultant, but he's also an expert on the birds of Belize. He's an author, of the, one of the main field mm. guys to the birds of Belize. So anyway, that got me out to some of the islands. But no, some, two of the islands are military, and you can't just go there. That, that was my impression, too. I went on that five-day uh, pelagic trip out of uh, San Diego, the searcher trip. It's just a, if anyone gets a chance to go, that is just such a spectacular pelagic trip. But we, I remember cruising by San Clemente Island and, uh, and heard some stories about that on that trip. That was very nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, I'm going to uh, switch up subjects a little bit. Uh, I, I'm on the WASP board, the Washington Ornithologist Society board now, and we just went through a whole 
bylaws revision for the Rare Birds Committee, and I, I learned more about Rare Birds Committees than I uh, maybe knew before. Uh, so uh, I know you've been on the California uh, Bird Records Committee, excuse me, it's not Rare Birds, Bird Records Committee. Uh, and uh, that's a super important job and a cool thing that states do. Tell me about your experiences with that and, and uh, how that's been. Well, again, that's something that, that Guy McCaskey and, and a few others way back um, around 1970 got going, and Guy modeled it after committees in Britain, um, which had been doing that sort of thing for quite a while. And it's, you know, I was on the committee, I, I forget when I first came on, but spent a long time. I haven't been on it in the last four or five years, just too much else to do and too many good young birders who were um, doing a great job on the committee. But yeah, it, it you know, people think of committees as, as basically like a, a set of jurors and somebody claims a record and they vote it up or down. But, you know, we always like to make the point that these bird records committees are primarily involved in archiving um, documentation for unusual birds and whether the record is accepted or not. Um, it is almost secondary. It's it's important to archive the documentation and then to put together the um, you know the, the cumulative records into to make some sense out of them. So one of the great things the California Bird Records Committee did um, a few years back was to publish the the rare birds of California, which is basically a summary of the status of, of vagrants in California based on committee decisions. I I always kind of bristle at the term rare birds because some of these things are, are hardly rare. They're some of the most abundant birds in the world. They're just unusual or out of range in California. But uh, nevertheless, it's um, the committee's done great work. There's always been really good people, good arguments. There, there were periods when some of the arguments got a little ugly. Um, some of it, um, well, I, I, don't, I don't want to go into any detail, but yeah, a lot of the disagreements have to do not in in some cases with actual identification issues, but a lot of them were or natural origin issues, and you know so things like and and I will admit this when the first swallowtail gull showed up in California, it just didn't seem like something that was biologically likely to me um, and to several others, and in fact that that was not accepted for a while. There have since been several other records. We're learning so much more about just how extensive vagrancy can be in patterns that once seemed like there were no patterns. It was just a total accidental fluke turn out eventually to fit into some kinds of patterns. So, um, you know, there's a lot of rancor about that at a few other species. Um, but, um, and, you know, I, I still worry with a lot of things, uh, you know, there's, and this is true of the ABA committee, which I spent a little bit of time on as well as, you know, how do you deal with things that are just totally off the wall and yet are probably not impossible, you know, like a hooded crane in the U.S. or, um, you know, we've dealt with black-backed oriole and things like that. So those are those are not the fun parts of the committee. But on the other hand, gathering the information about status and likelihood of vagrancy and all that is is an important thing to do. It is. I, and, and trust me, I so appreciate the work that the uh, Bird Records Committees do. It, it's 
fabulous to have that resource to look back and say, wow, that bird, I wonder if that's been seen before. You can look back, it's very easy. You just go to the historical record. Yeah, there was one in 1902, 1947. <laughs> it's just really fabulous resource. And now that it's online, makes it even so much better. Yeah. Uh, so uh, for anyone who uh, is a young birder or an aspiring birder of any age, you know, what, do you have any uh, advice, suggestions, things you would uh, encourage them to do or look into? Yeah, well, you said young birder. So, you know, my usual piece of advice, and I get asked a lot, for example, about learning bird vocalizations and, and learning to be you know, in, incorporating that into your birding, which, of course, we all do and, and I can't right. imagine not doing that. But my, my advice is always start young. You know, because learning bird calls is like learning a language. And, you know, it, it, you know, you don't even think about how you learned your, your native tongue when you grew up as a real young kid. It just came to you because you were exposed to it. Well, same thing with birds. And, you know, I've given a lot of talks to Audubon societies where I've, I've talked about my little hints and points for being a better birder. And I always start with start young. And I look out into my audience, at least back in the yeah. 80s and 90s and so on. And I thought, well... Maybe I should just put that point aside a little bit. <laughs> but, but if a birder is starting out young, um, I, I guess, well, a couple things. Um, first of all, take advantage of the incredible volume of knowledge that has already been developed. You know, it's tempting to think you're learning all this stuff for the first time, but read the books, read the guides, read the ornithological literature, um, no status and distribution, because most of it, although you're going to discover interesting things, um, most of this is already pretty well known. And so it's not like you're starting out in a vacuum. And, and we, we talked about that earlier, you know, back in the late 1960s, there's a lot known, but nothing like what we know now. So just take advantage of all that information from those who came before you. And, and I don't just mean the last 5, 10, 20 years, but, you know, the last 100, 200 years even going back. Another thing I, I always am keen on is is look at maps, learn geography, just learn your the geography and topography of the areas where you are, the areas where you bird. Um, I, I just, I like to think geographically. And I get very discouraged in this day and age when geography seems to be almost considered irrelevant. You know, you, something happens in the news and I keep thinking, well, where is this fire? Where did that happen? And they won't even tell you because it's like nobody thinks about geography anymore. We're instantly global in everything we do, but it's really important for birds to start learning, you know, what, you know, just stare at maps and say, oh, well, here's an interesting little valley between these mountains or look at that mountain range there or look at this point, how far it sticks out into the ocean. That might be interesting. So, I just, I just, you know, a lot of birders are map freaks, and I think that serves them really well. There's a, there's a great, great book written by the famous ecologist Robert MacArthur back in the, um, oh God, it must have been the early '60s or mid, in the '60s sometime, called Geographical Ecology, and it, it gets into, you know, a lot of kind of mathematical ecology, but there's some really good sections in there on just understanding geography and climate and how it impacts ecology and so on. And I'm not expecting everybody would read that, but, but take advantage of, of that kind of information. You know, it's so true. I, I uh, 
talk to young young birders, especially uh, Will Brooks, who just has graduated from UPS here in Tacoma. Uh, he's going to places that nobody's ever been to before and finding great birds. And I was like, well, how'd you even think? Well, I just looked at uh, I just looked at Google Maps and I looked around. And I said, I wonder what's out there, <laughs> you know. And he goes and finds six six gray flycatchers, first Pierce County records in the spring. It's like how do you do that? You know, and uh, yeah, yeah. just look, looked at those, a gap through the mountains there. Nobody would ever really been there. And, uh, mm-hmm. Thought we'd check that out. Yeah, Things like good, that. Good, good yeah. for Will. That's, that's, yeah, that's good stuff. That's fun to do. And I know he's kind of getting into, well, several of you up there are getting into the interesting things going on with white crown sparrows and different subspecies. Yeah. He, he did some nice work with that over yeah, two summers. That's great stuff. It is very good. Uh, the other uh, kind of funny thing uh, on the same idea of looking at maps, I uh, yeah, I live in Tacoma, which is, you know, 30 miles from Seattle. It's not far at all. Uh, and they just get so many unusual uh, seabirds there that we just don't, I mean, we get them occasionally, but not in the frequency and the numbers. And I'm like, what's the difference? It's really close. But if you look at a map of the Salish Sea in Puget Sound, it's not close at all. If you're a bird, you got to fly way in one inlet, down another and over and around. It's like, you can see how they kind of mistakenly get as far as Seattle, but it's a lot bigger mistake to get down to Tacoma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if it doesn't, yeah. You're right. Geography plays a huge role in understanding distribution. That's cool stuff. Uh, what's come? What's coming up for you in terms of birding? I know right now, staying home, staying safe is coming up for all of us. But, but do you have anything on your wish list? Things you really want to do, or places you want to see, or you know, what's on your uh, dream list still? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'll probably retire before too long. I mean, it. it like I say, it's been 38 years at, at the museum. Um, and I certainly plan to take advantage of that extra time doing birding. But but also, I would love to be continue to help with museum work and, and um, museum-type ornithology. But yeah, you know, I think like everybody else, I kind of dream of every every part of the world I would love to visit. I've been, I haven't done a lot of international birding. I've done some work for the museum or tours for museum members. So I've been to, you know, the East Africa a couple of times and one stint in Amazonian Peru. And I've been out in the central Pacific ocean and quick trips to Australia and, and Europe and so on. I've, I've never been to Asia. I, I really would like, a, and I might, I've, I've never signed up for a birding tour, but I suppose in my dotage, I might uh, want to take a tour maybe of John Dunn if he's still leading them to Thailand and, and just really get exposed to Asian birds. But other than that, um, I just continue to learn. I've, I've always kind of been a local person sticking around LA County. I would love to put together what I know and can dig up about the avifon of LA County into some kind of, you know, the either online or published book. So I'd like to keep working on that and filling in gaps. We did a breeding bird atlas of LA County back in 1995 to 2000. So there's mm-hmm. muttering now about repeating that as, as many atlas places have done. And so I certainly like to remain involved in kind of, um, you know, applied birding, that sort of thing as, as long as sure. I can. 
Very cool. Uh, so I, as we wrap up, uh, Garrett, are there uh, causes you want to shout out for or you know anything? I'd like to give my guests an opportunity to give a plug for something that's important to them. Uh, do you have any any uh, causes you want to give a shout out to? And also, how can people reach out to you if they want to, if they want to get a hold of you? Yeah, I'm easy to find at the Natural History Museum. Just look up at the uh, nhm.org, the Natural History website, and look up ornithology, and I'd be happy to chat with or email with with anybody about about birds and ornithology um causes well yeah i mean i I think one thing we're all thinking a lot about right now is is you know we talk about um our passion of birds and ornithology and yet it's clear that it's it's sort of a older white person's game largely um I, i think the gender inequities have have been getting much less pronounced which which of course is wonderful but um, we just we're not involving everybody equally in society and in our pursuits and we really have to be as welcoming as we can and 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 deal with with younger people um because you know that spark of of the outdoors and and biology and birds and so on and get them involved. Um, I I think that's just something we're all thinking a lot about and we have to do a much better job at. Um, Yeah, beyond beyond that, you know, there are so many conservation issues that are so frustrating. I think we see the direction we are going in terms of how we take care of our natural resources and the planet is obviously pretty hideous right now. And um, I'm not going to get into political causes, but I think we see some ways looming on the near horizon to make that a little bit better. Um, but yeah, other, other than that, um, just continuing to learn as much as I can and teach as much as I can about birds is what I like to keep doing. Well, it sounds like you're going to do that. Now, Garrett, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I appreciate it. And uh, you uh, have a great uh, rest of the fall and summer birding and uh, take care. Thanks. Great chatting with you, Ed. Thank you. Well, that wraps up the Burbanner podcast, episode number 72 with Kimball Garrett. I hope you enjoyed. He brought up some really fine topics. Geography. I mean, not something you think of every day as uh, uh, something to study as a birder. But really, when you think about it, knowing the geography of your area and of where you're going really helps you understand what's possible, what's likely, why, the why of where you find birds in certain places. Really pretty cool to think about that. I, I sort of knew that, but I hadn't really hadn't really solidified my mind nearly as much as when I uh, was listening to Kim- Kimball today. That was really fun to hear. Uh, also, uh, his passion, along with many of the other guests I've had on, for status and distribution of species. I remember talking to Dave Irons uh, when I had Dave on the, the podcast. He is really into status and distribution of species of birds all over, but especially in Oregon where he lives. And Kimball is really passionate about that. And it was really fun to hear him talk about that today. Also, what is involved in the professionals that work in a natural history museum? What do, what does he, what do the various jobs do? Uh, it was really fun to hear about that. He's worked at the Los Angeles County Natural History Museum for a long time uh, and has been the uh, in charge of the specimens there. And really fun to hear his uh, point of view on that and on museums in, in modern 
uh, birding and modern science. So that was fun to hear too. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, I'll make sure I put up a good uh, blog post associated with this episode to give links to some of the things that Garrett talked about and uh, explore a little bit more about some of the topics we uh, mentioned on the episode today. So I hope you enjoyed. Thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding, good day.